Let's pray. Lord God, we just pray that you once again would speak to us. We pray, Lord, that our hearts would lay aside those things that are distracting us, those things that we're thinking about that come up after church or this week, or maybe thinking about something that happened yesterday or this past week that's troubling our mind. And we pray, God, that we can just stop and focus on who you are and what you want to say to us this morning. So we invite your spirit to speak, and we, as we worship you, will listen. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, two New Yorkers decided to buy a farm in Texas. (laughs) You already know where this is going, huh? They wanted to buy a mule for plowing, so they, they asked this neighbor, and they went to him, and, and they asked, do you have a plowing mule to sell? And so the neighbor, he didn't have one, but he decided he's going to have some fun with these, these city slickers from New York City. And so he uh, said, nope, I don't have a plowing mule, but I do have, and he points to these honeydew melons on the ground, he goes, I do have these mule eggs. And you could take one of those, and in a week or so, it'll hatch, and you'll have yourself a little mule that you can teach how to plow. And so the New Yorkers placed this melon or this mule egg in their truck, and they in the back of their pickup truck, yes, they had to go out and buy a pickup truck, and they they had to turn in their, their BMW for that pickup truck. And so they have it in the back of the pickup, and they're going on a really bumpy road. And that they hit a big bump and the melon just flies off and it lands and splits open and, and they're like, oh no, we lost it. And they back up and they back all the way up and there's this melon and this, meanwhile the Texas jackrabbit has jumped up and he's starting to eat the melon. And one of the New Yorkers exclaims to the other, look, our mule egg has hatched. Let's get it. And so that jackrabbit took off running, and the New Yorkers were running after him, and finally they just gave up, and they were exhausted. One of them turned to the other one, and he said, Well, looks like we lost our mule. And the other one said, Well, you know, I don't think I want to plow that fast anyway. (laughs) Well, sometimes we think serving in ministry is a lot like that. We fear that we're going to run so fast, we're going to get so exhausted that we're going to be a lot like those New Yorkers when we're trying to do ministry. But let me ask you this morning, is that how God designed ministry? Did God design it for us to be exhausted and feel like we're running around and and just we don't know what we're doing? Well, we're going to talk about our next trait of a healthy church gift-based ministry, that you do your ministry, but you do it based on your spiritual gift. And so we're going to be looking in 1 Peter, and we're going to be looking in Ephesians 4, and we're going to unpack that. But I want to go back to the Old Testament. We're not going to look up a verse there, but I want to set the scene for this 1 Peter 2 verse that we're going to look at in a minute. Now, in the Old Testament, the plan was for God, he set up his temple in Jerusalem, and the Israel was supposed to have this righteous character, and they were to bring the nations in to worship God at this center on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. 
And even God even set up priests so that there would be this mediated relationship between man and him. And that was what Israel was supposed to do, is to be outward-looking, bringing the nations in, but that is not what they did. They became, well, we're God's chosen people, and they put up big walls around them, so metaphorically speaking, to say, we don't want people coming in. We want to be a separate people, except when they compromise themselves. But they never were very outreach-oriented. And they didn't bring people in, and their righteousness failed, and so they didn't have much of a light to show people what God might be like to come to Jerusalem. Yeah, we have stories like the Queen of Sheba and Solomon, but they're few and far between. And apart from the reign of David and Solomon, Israel didn't do much to reach out. Well, the New Testament comes, and God made a big shift. God said, I'm going to move things around. And here's what 1 Peter chapter 2, if you want to look on the screen or pull out your Bible, chapter 2, verse 5, you also, Peter says, like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 9, you are a chosen people. Now notice this language. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, you notice that language. I mean, there's a lot of Old Testament words and concepts that he is now saying apply to the church. And this is a big change. So here's, here's some of the highlights of those big changes. There's no temple, big temple for everyone to come to now. Now you are the temple. You are the spiritual stone. You are a living temple, a living stone that makes up a spiritual temple. And God lives not really even here or any other church, but inside his people. And so you are a worldwide temple because we are all over the world. You're a mobile temple. You move around and you show off who God is to the people around you. A big change, wouldn't you agree? We're also each a priest. We're not only are we the temple, but we're the priest in that temple. And so it says, you know, you're a holy priesthood. So you are a priest that ministers God to the people around you. You offer spiritual sacrifices with your life and your worship. And so what this means then is that the ministry of the kingdom in the New Testament era is not the exclusive you know, place where only a professional group of people do this thing. That this, this temple, this priesthood that's in all of you, we don't look for a professional group to take care of it because we all do the work of ministry, each one of us. You're the priest, you're the temple, you're offering the spiritual sacrifice. And so it's not dependent on a professional priesthood. And so we take God's light out into the the world where there's darkness. And you offer that spiritual sacrifice. So you and I are both together involved in the work of ministry. It's not a professional class of pastors who are supposed to do all the work of ministry. Well, doesn't that sound great? 
And for a while that worked. You know, for the first 400 years, the church didn't have buildings. The church didn't have professional priests or professional pastors. They were meeting in homes, in caves. They were hiding because they were persecuted. And yet, with no buildings, no professional staff, the church grew exponentially. Now, what's going on here? I mean, wouldn't you think you'd need buildings and pastors to have an effective ministry? Well, the early church showed you that's not true. Currently, China shows you that's not true. The church is growing, has grown since 1948 very rapidly without buildings. Well, they have a few buildings that are sanctioned, but a lot of the underground house church movement, and they're growing rapidly without those things because it's the Holy Spirit living in you as the temple saying, you are the priest, you are to go out. And so God put that in us to go out and take the light into the world. And so things changed. I don't know when Constantine, it, somewhere in the mid eighty three hundreds, said Christianity was okay, and all of a sudden then we got structure, we got buildings, we got st- staff, we got professional priests, and all of a sudden things changed. But hundred years, hundred and twenty, or not hundred years, thousand, twelve hundred years later, the, the Reformation comes and it reclaims the priesthood of the believer. And Martin Luther and Calvin are talking about, you can read your Bibles, you are priests. And then the Industrial Revolution comes, and pretty soon people are working these ridiculously long hours, and they're all away from the the farms and into the cities. And pretty soon what you end up having is this whole situation where, well, we can't do work of ministry, we're too busy working in the factory, so we'll hire professionals to do the work of the ministry. And they'll get trained, so they'll have more expertise, They'll have more time because that'll be their full-time job. And now all of a sudden from the Old Testament, we lost, we went back to that and lost what Peter had said in 1 Peter 2. And pretty soon it was a professional class of people again. And it ends up where the average priest, the average believer feels left out. They feel, well, I, I can't do that. I'm not a professional. I'm not trained And so they're left out and they feel less than. And so Peter's saying, this is the pattern. This is the blueprint that God has for us. And then Ephesians 4, Paul comes along in chapter 4 and verse 11 and is going to continue the idea that Peter was stating. So Christ, he says, gave apostles and prophets and evangelists, shepherds and teachers Why? To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. So these gifted people are not to do all the work of the ministry. They are to equip the body to do the work of the ministry. And so the works of service, they have to be built up for that. And it talks about these various people equipping. Who are these five? Some call it the fivefold ministry. First, apostles. They're sent out. Literally, that's what apostle means, sent out one. And they are the ones who establish new things. So we had apostles that established the church, and there's the ones that saw Jesus, were a part of his ministry. Paul, they think, saw Jesus in his um, time after the Damascus Road experience and literally conversed with Jesus. 
But then there's another group of apostles who go out, and some might call them church planners today, and they start new things. And then it says there's prophets. And we always think, oh, prophet, they they tell the future. But mostly prophecy is not telling the future. It's bringing a direct word from God to a situation that's happening right now. So the prophets would would proclaim God and what God's will was and what, what God wanted. And then it said that there were evangelists, people that were gifted to be able to present the gospel, and there would be people that would make a commitment to Jesus from that presentation. And they just seem, do you ever known somebody, you know, you can talk to them a whole bunch, and we've talked about that for a couple of weeks, and then somebody else comes along that they don't even know and, and presents it, and all of a sudden, yeah, I made this decision. You're like, I've been telling you this for two years. But the evangelist just has this special gift that they, they kind of close the deal, so to speak. And then there's pastors, which means shepherds, it wasn't an office of pastor, a hired position. It was the person who shepherded the congregation, who looked after the established church. The apostles started it, and the prophets and the evangelists helped get it going. But it was the pastor who kind of taught, well, he'll teach, as we see in the next gift. Some say those are the same gift, pastor, teacher. But pastor who shepherds, and then teacher who's able to unpack and explain spiritual principles, and communicate them effectively. And so that's what these guys, these five-fold ministry, these folks do. They equip the body. Now, what does that word equip means? And it's probably what you think. There's no special Greek meaning that's, wow, that's just, I never knew that kind of thing. It just simply is to make ready, to get something ready. Now, You'll be able to tell how old I am. My very first new car that I bought was a 1972 Chevy Vega. Now, Vegas were infamous. Oh, the story's going to get worse. So the Chevy Vega was notorious for having an aluminum block engine that when it got too hot would crack. Okay, and when your engine block is cracked, you're in big trouble. Anyway, you could say it wasn't very well equipped, not to mention about every 16, 17,000 miles that you had to put a new clutch in it. And no, it wasn't how I drove. <laughs> so, just to keep our Chevy GM uh, thing going, Karen bought a 1980 Citation, which was of all the cars in that era, probably when you thought of the word lemon, you'd think of a citation. (laughs) We were on a roll. And so it had brand new, 15 major repairs. Not like there's a little wind noise over here. Major repairs, breakdowns. She's driving from the middle of Dallas down into the south part through a very rough area of town, 15 major repairs. The car was in the, the repair shop. When she finally, after a year, her principal said, you got to get something new, she went to the Honda dealer. And I know some of you probably are American only, and so please don't stone us. But um, And so they would quote her a price at the Honda dealer, take it to the Chevrolet place, and they go, oh, we know that car. Every Chevy dealer in Dallas had seen that car, and it's a repair shop at one time or another. And so you could say that that car was not very well equipped either to do the work of service, which was a reliable uh, transportation. 
So that's equipped. You have poorly equipped cars that we made bad choices on. But nowadays, new cars have so many features, airbags all around you, backup cameras so you don't run into a pole like I did with my Chevy Vega, sensors to keep you in your lane. A guy was on his truck and he showed me he veered from and it it pushed him back into his lane, Uh, collision prevention, navigation systems, integrated sound, you push a button and you can talk on your phone hands-free so the police like you. And better gas mileage than that Vega and that Citation. Cars are better equipped today to do the work of service of transportation. And so they're more reliable, yes, but they are equipped so that you can get where you want to go without breaking down and safely and in comfort. And so that's the idea. We need saints in the churches who are well equipped, not less effective saints who don't work. The work of ministry is best done by believers using their spiritual gifts. Do you know what your gift is? We're going to talk next week about the range of gifts, so we won't get into that this week, but that's God's original blueprint. This is what God had in mind to say, I'm going to put these gifts and I'm going to spread them out among all of you. You bring them together and as priests and living temple, living stones in this living temple, you use that gift to do a work of ministry because I'm going to outfit all of you to bring it together and put it together so you're the most effective way. So, number one on your outline, gift-based ministry equips every believer as a priest. We equip every believer. That's the job, really, of pastors across the country or priests They are to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. There's so much more you can do than I can do. You get out and spread out among the community with the relationships that you have, and you will be so much more effective than me. A sports reporter once asked standout coach Bud Wilkinson what he thought college football had done for physical fitness in America. And they were all braced and ready for this winsome answer. And he goes, nothing, nothing. College football is 60,000 people desperately in need of exercise, yelling at 22 men desperately in need of rest. (laughs) That's what ministry is often like. It's that 80-20. You've heard that in most American churches. 80% of the work in the church is done by 20% of the people. And maybe some have said even in giving and tithing, 80% of the people, I mean 20% of the people are carrying 80% of the load. But this is not what God intended. So let me ask you first this morning, will you be part of a church community that can help you discover that you have something to offer and they can help you discover what you have to offer? Are you willing to be part of a church that will help train and focus you on that goal? Think about that. Are you tired of being busy in your life doing so many things that leave you empty? Because if you get equipped, you discover your spiritual gift, you get equipped to use that gift, you can be much more effective in what you're do- excuse me, doing in your life. It can make a difference. <clears throat> Better take a drink. Okay, Ephesians 4, moving on, verse 13. 
until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of God. So the goal of gift-based ministry is three things that are mentioned here. Unity in faith, mature, and fullness, the fullness of Christ. But here's how one letter to the editor described the modern American church. It says, a lot of churches in America now, it's 10 steps to getting what you want. It's learning about Jesus as you become more successful, prosperous, talented, efficient, creative, and likable. Ouch. Or how to become more intimate with God while you do your own thing. You kind of get the idea with spiritual gifts. This isn't about doing your own thing. It's about God's put this in you and he wants you to do it. And when you do the thing he's equipped you to do and gifted you to do, it's going to accomplish a lot more than doing your own thing. Now, in contrast, unity in faith has a different goal. We set aside differences We set aside prejudices to unite with other believers no matter how different they may be. We unite with them. We make unity. Remember, that was Jesus' final prayer request to the Father in John 17. Unity. We see people through God's eyes. Now, mature, we think, but mature, that means perfect, right? And sometimes that word is used for the word perfect. But mature... It means whole also. It doesn't necessarily mean you're flawless, that you've arrived, you have no sins. It just means you've come up to mature. Your body reaches a certain height and then it stops. It's at its mature height. Hopefully not width, but that's a different story, right? But maturity doesn't mean flawless perfection. It just means you are at a mature place where, like when something happens and and life throws you a bunch of difficulties, you're able to handle it. You're able to trust God. You're able to stick with him. doesn't mean you don't suffer. But when you're mature, you can look at things a little bit different and handle challenges with a deeper trust in God. And then fullness of Christ, a peaceful heart, And you're at peace in these situations because you're in constant dependence on Jesus. You're not thinking, i got to perform better. You're just saying, okay, God, what do you want to teach me? What do you want to do in my life with this time right now? So unity, maturity, and fullness. These traits aren't necessarily related to how long you've been a Christian. Um, Howard Hendricks at my seminary once said, you know, you can have 20 years of experience as a Christian or one year of experience 20 times, meaning you don't ever grow past that. Okay, I became a Christian. This is how it is, and I never change. I never grow. I coast on in. And so you ever notice sometimes for people, some of us, the longer we're Christians, the more difficult we are to be around the more rigid and even, oh, do I say it, cantankerous? God wants us not as we mature in our faith to become more difficult, but to have more fruit of the Spirit, not less, more fruit. That people say, I look at that their life and, and I can see Jesus, especially if they've known you from way back when and they can see how you've progressed. So we have more fruit of the Spirit, we have more maturity, more fullness, more unity as we progress. Then verse 16 of Ephesians 4. 
From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So we're equipped, which means to be made ready, and built up. And built up is a construction term. It's like fitting a building for use, making it ready. You can look all around you and see the building has been fitted for use. It's it's. Not just made ready, but it's fitted for a particular thing that it can do. So build up, fitting for use. Now, our world doesn't lack people who feel like rubble on the scrap heap of life, right? Everybody at some point feels like a little piece of rubble. And so when we come along and somebody ministers to us, then we feel a little bit less like a piece of rubble when someone cares for us, uses their gift to encourage us. Imagining giving help to somebody that helps them feel useful, fitted for use because you encourage them. In our body, every ligament, every joint, it says in verse 16, every ligament, even the little ones matter. You know, so some of you saw me kind of limping around a few weeks ago in this major ligament. I was stepping over the little electric eye in a garage door so it wouldn't come down. And, you know, this big ligament popped. And it made trouble for a little while. But you know, even a tiny little ligament can make a big difference. If your toe hurts, it's not an insignificant part of your foot or your body. It's hard to walk when your toe's not working. If you ever had to have your big toe taken off, do you know you have to learn to walk again? Because your balance is completely different without that big toe. Years ago, Karen uh, fell on some ice when she was out walking getting her exercise, and so she broke her thumb. Which hand was it? Your right hand. She has bad luck with breaking right side things. And so this, this little thumb breaks, and there's a cast all the way up to her arm, and it throws off her balance. It was hard to walk, and, and you start favoring one side over another. See, the most insignificant thing, you think it's just a little bone. It's just a little ligament. What's the big deal? But there is no insignificant part of the body. 1 Corinthians 12 says the same thing. We all matter. Each part of who we are matters. Don't assume that your part, your gift, doesn't matter. God uses, used an ordinary stone in an ordinary sling with a common shepherd boy to change the whole history of Israel. The tide of battle changed that day, didn't it? Max Lucado, he has something nice to say this week. Anyone who underestimates what God can do with the ordinary has rocks in his head. God's power shines not through the ability of the instrument, but through its availability. So you think, I don't have the talent. I saw so-and-so and they were teaching or they were doing this gifted thing or they were doing helps ministry. I could never be like them. But God's saying, you don't need to be like them. You just need to be available. It's not about, you know, how talented you are. It's not, it's not about how your ability measures up to someone else's. It's about your availability because if God specializes in using ordinary rocks with an ordinary sling in what at that point was a common shepherd boy, a teenager, and he changed the world. So don't assume your part doesn't matter. 
Some churches operate like a manufacturing shop where, you know, it's like an assembly line. You just plug the people into whatever job, you know. So Jason, he's really pretty good with the gift of mercy with helping the hurting, but we really need somebody to catalog the library, so we put him there instead. Or Mary, you know, she she's really good with... Uh, with her gift of helps behind the scene. But, you know, Sunday school needs a teacher, so we stick her in Sunday school, even though Mary has the gift of helps, not the gift of teaching. But that's not how God designed us. If he gave us a gift, he says, find your place of service and use it there. And churches, we have to all change how we look at where people serve also. And I'm going to tell you again later, but that place might not be inside the walls of the church. It might be in the community. But when we are serving best where we're gifted and we're equipped and we're nurtured, it releases a powerful force out into the community. We can make a difference. You can make a difference. And the community can be changed. So number two on your outline, gift-based ministry builds the body to maturity. It equips every believer as a priest, and then it builds the body to maturity. So using your spiritual gift to change lives is God's plan for each of us. Each of us. When circumstances aren't going well and you feel like the fullness of God is draining right out of your life, and somebody shares that gift and ministers to you and they help you back on the road to maturity, that's what God has in mind for spiritual gifts. Not to exhaust you, not to place you where you think, if I volunteer, I'll get put in something I hate. Use your gift. And don't don't be shy. Don't think you're going to get stuck if God's in it. So last story, a hiker was thirsty for a drink of water, and he'd hiked all day long. and, And so he came up to this pump. And so he starts pumping, and nothing. Finally, he notices this jug of water or a pail of water there. And and so there's a note attached to this pail of water that says, pour this water down the pump. Now, he has a choice to make, right? I mean, he's thirsty. There's water right there in the pail. Or he can do what the note says and prime the pump and give it away. And so he thinks about it and he takes the risk follows the directions, and before long, he gets more water than he can drink. Before going his way, he fills up the pail with, with the water for the next person, and he writes on, adds on the notes, it really works. You have to give it all away before you get anything back. That's what spiritual gifts do for us. When we exercise them in the body, you may fear, I'm going to give up my my resources, my time, my energy. But when you invest that, you will get something back and you will find that you can make a difference to those around you. So are you willing to share your gift? Using your gift, like I said, it's not, don't just think of what can I do in the church. You might have a calling outside the church, a calling to do something in the community. And there's lots of you that are doing that already. And praise God for the food bank, for, you know, going to uh, Quail Hollow, for what we've done in Sunny Acres, long-term care, even though that's ended. There's a lot of people involved in a lot of things, and that's what God wants. It isn't just what happens in these four walls. So God has a place for you if you will respond to that calling, and your life will be richer for it. 
and your life can make a difference. Let's pray. Lord God, as we take this week and next week to look at what gift-based ministry is, help us to lay aside these fears, preconceived notions, because, you know, for years or decades, we've been in the church and we've remembered what ministry was like. But help us to find your model, God. Help us to find what you want us to do as an individual, each person here using the gift or gifts that they have in a way that will make a difference in the lives of others. And Lord, as a church, may we have a vision for encouraging people to serve where they've been fitted best and equipped best and equip them how to use that gift in the best way. So open up our eyes, Lord, and yes, we're all busy, but help us to see how we can use these gifts in the activities of our life, not just adding on a bunch of other things. And may, Lord, we balance our lives and feel the energizing as we do what we're called to do. Help us in this way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. See, Tom? Oh, a song? Well, you're changing the order of service. I don't know if I can handle it, but... Give it a try, okay? Uh, I'll try.